The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello there, everyone. This is the Invictus Mind Podcast, and I am your host, Mike Corbell. Do you ever just look around at the amount of work that needs to be done and wonder how the heck it's going to happen? Sometimes things just get so insurmountable that it almost makes you want to just walk away from it all. Sometimes it leaves you just feeling hopeless, and the frustration puts you at ends with anyone in your path. Well, that was me this week. And when I couple that with technology only operating when it wants to, by the way, you know what I mean, your computer takes a dump right when you're about to start a project, your camera breaks, or you misplace your cell phone. I really do believe that one day robots are going to take over. I mean, they force you to reschedule things. I don't know, maybe they want you to sweet talk them or appreciate them because they know that you can't do the things you want to do unless that equipment is working. Well, today is Sunday, and I just got finished with my second podcast of the day. And just so I could be consistent enough to put out this episode for all you listeners, I want to say that somehow, and I don't know why it happened, everything seemed to work out. This is a lesson to always have a positive mindset and always have a backup plan. I think that is true in so many areas of life. Have a backup plan. If the editing software doesn't work, have a backup plan. If the podcast doesn't record correctly, have a backup plan. If you lose your job, have a backup plan. If you marry the wrong woman, okay, I'll just leave it there. By the way, if you follow this show on the audio-only podcast, you'll probably notice that I like to share a couple of thoughts before I get into discussion. And if you're watching me on YouTube, I usually just get right into it. There I don't take the time to uh, get into all the promotions and rarely even edit the thing for the videos. But that's going to be my next step once I'm... Uh, able to build out my studio in the house that my wife and I are going to buy next spring. So uh, until then, I guess I'm just going to have to find a way to balance everything I'm doing right now. With that being said, I do appreciate every one of you listeners out there. If you like this show, please share it with three of your friends. Help me get the word out. This is a labor of love, and maybe someday I'll actually make some money with it. But, uh, you know, I've had a couple of affiliates on here, and unfortunately I haven't been that consistent with them. But if you are a regular listener, then you know some of the shows I've had on in the past, and you can check out the products I've mentioned before. If you want to give me money, that's cool too, but I would rather offer something of real value to you. So for that, you can connect with me on Twitter at The Invictus Mind, or simply send me an email at mwcorbell1 at gmail, and there we can connect personally, and I have a couple of cool business ideas to share with you, and we can explore them together. Anyway, not to belabor this point or come across as insincere, and in any way disparage my guest, I really did enjoy today's episode. What would a real libertarian society look like? Is it even possible to build one and see it flourish for those that reside within it? My guest today wrote an interesting novel about such a prospect, 
and we will get into his line of thinking and perhaps address some of the real issues that many libertarians sometimes miss when they are building Ancapistan in their heads. To directly steal a quote from my friend Pete Quinones. Anyway, coming up next is my conversation with author Rudy Fenimore. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Invictus Mind podcast. This is your host, Mike Corbell. This is take two of my interview with Rudy Fenimore. You got to love technology in the podcast world. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So um, I did have a 40-minute conversation with this gentleman yesterday, but uh, we're not going to publish that. So we're going to repeat some of the same talking points we did. How are you doing today, Rudy? I'm doing great. And I promise I won't say the exact same thing I said yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me uh, let me briefly introduce you and where we met, and uh, we'll just kind of get into it. So, uh, Rudy and I met each other at the Tom Woods podcast, uh, 2000th episode, uh, live in Orlando, Florida, uh, this past summer, or actually just a couple weeks ago, yep. and uh, it was a great time. Rudy is uh, an author. He's the author of the book uh, Concordia. I know this is going to be backwards. Oh, not in this camera. There must be a better way. There's your name down there. <laughs> Wait. So, uh, Rudy, uh, let's before we get started uh, talking about the book, uh, just like to get to know your background a little bit, and uh, you know what got you into the Liberty Circle, and uh, what made you want to be an author. Well, let's start with the author part first. So, okay. um, I've I've been I do software for my regular day job, so that's how I put a food on the table. And since I actually started my own business in 2014, and since then I've had to author a lot of material for the company. And, and I've noticed that I've, number one, got a skill for writing, but number two, I just enjoy it. I love writing. And I had several ideas for books, you know, just, just things, because I'm, I'm kind of like one of these people that's always busy. Like, I don't like to just sit down and lounge around on the couch. So I wanted a project to do on the side. And, you know, I, I, the idea of writing a book was really compelling to me. Uh, I, initially, I wanted to write a science fiction book. But then as I got into it, I, I started reading. I did a lot of research on science fiction. I started reading older science fiction. And, you know, if you write something now, 10, 20 years from now, it's not going to age well. So I was like, I'd rather instead of focus on trying to figure out technology, I'd rather write a book that's in the present that I can focus more on philosophy and ideas and action and, you know, make a compelling plot line than than really to, to write a book about science, right? So that's, that's kind of where I went with the, the science fiction. Uh, as far as liberty is concerned, um, I was one of those kids growing up. My parents, they loved uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, we were a very conservative household. And, you know, they weren't too warm on Bush. But then when Clinton came in, you know, they, they couldn't stand him. And, you know, during that time, I was old enough to start voting and kind of got into politics. And, when Bush Jr. got in, I was like, all right, finally, the Republicans, we mm -hmm. were in, you know, all these great things they promised, like privatizing Social Security and, you know, getting rid of regulations and having a humble foreign policy, all those things that Bush had promised. I was like, all right, I can't wait. And then absolutely none of that happened. And that's what I was like, all right, whatever Republicans are, I'm, that's not me. And <laughs> Then Ron Paul came around and that's when, you know, really I was like, all right, I got to find out more about his ideas. And he kind of drew me in. I, I'd always been like, um, you know, kind of a minarchist government's a necessary evil, but he kind of drew me in to the economic side of things, the Austrian point of view. 
and really opened my mind as to what the nature of the state was. So that's, and since then, I've definitely, I've been following all the entire movement, you know, listening to Tom Woods, to Peter Schiff, to uh, all tons of YouTube stuff. So, I mean, that's, Ron Paul definitely hooked me in, into the movement. I wish I can quantify how many people actually were converted to libertarian thought by Ron Paul, but uh, he certainly made a, an impact uh, in this country um, because I never heard of libertarianism before Ron Paul. I mean, I take it back. I, I knew there was a party called the Libertarian Party. When I was in college in, uh, in the year 2000 or 2001, something like that, uh, I took a political science class and uh, you know, I took the, court, the quiz and I said I was a libertarian. And at that point in time, I was like, okay, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> but right. like yourself, it was uh, it was Ron Paul who I, I was introduced to, and then uh, you know the, the rest of the story goes as it is. <laughs> right. I mean, b- before I saw the Ron Paul movement, I just figured that libertarians were, you know, people people who wanted smaller government and wanted to smoke dope. You know, that <laughs> I didn't really think there was anything deeper to it than that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think like yourself, uh, I probably listened to thousands of podcasts and that's where I got most of my education from. I've, 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 I've read a lot of books. I've, I've never, uh, never written a book, but uh, I've read certainly a lot. And what I really like about, uh, about your book, Rudy, is that uh, it, it really encapsulates the entire ideology, I think, very well. You, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, objections to libertarian ideology. And the most common is who's going to build the roads? You know, that one. <laughs> You don't cover that in the book, but uh, uh, I mean, uh, for those of us who actually read libertarian authors and who uh, you know really dive into the ideology, you know, it it, it takes a lot to actually understand it. Uh, most normal people, you know, they look at you like you said, it's you know, okay, you just want to smoke dope and do whatever. But uh, there's there's a lot more to that. But I got to be honest, when I when I first uh, picked up your book, uh, it reminded me of Ayn Rand, uh, Atlas Shrugged. And then, you know, once I got into it, I was like, this is a little bit different. But uh, uh, was Ayn Rand one of your uh, inspirations? So that's that's a really interesting question. My my mom, she's an enormous Ayn Rand fan. Um, mm-hmm. She actually, when I was a kid, gave me the book. So I, I read them at a very young age. Um, I, I couldn't really get through, you know, the entire Atlas Shrugged in one reading. But mm-hmm. I got through it. But, you know, I was probably 12 at the time when I read it. So it's. It definitely had, um, it was formative on me, but, you know, the idea of just people dropping out and, you know, making something in private, that just, I mean, it was an interesting idea for a book, but it never really struck a chord to me as, as to this is how I would go and go build, you know, my own society, right? That didn't, it doesn't really function the way real people function. And that's, that's kind of where I deviate when I wrote my book is, I really wanted to focus on, you know, if if I had the means and we had a, the, like a place to, to build a new society, to build a new country, to to make a government in the image of libertarianism, how would you actually go about doing that? And that's that's really what I wanted to drive home in the book is that, you know, there's no perfect solutions, obviously, and there's going to be some compromises, but there are good solutions out there. and We need some way to articulate those. And, and hopefully I've done a good, compelling job of doing that in a fictional story that, you know, draws you into the story and isn't, you know, isn't just beating you over the head with philosophy. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was that was kind of my my goal on writing the book. Well, I think what makes it 
good is that it is a fiction novel. It's it's not uh, it's not a nonfiction. You know, just like you said, throw effects down your throat, and you know, and all of a sudden, you know, our heads are, are spinning because of ideology. This actually is as a practical story, and even if you weren't a libertarian, you could still enjoy it. Right, and you know, part of the audience for this as well. So you know, part of it is is the libertarian side of things. And then the other part of it is kind of where we're at now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that is exposing, you know, in the book, there's interactions with both the country of, of Chile and the country, you know, the USA, and specifically in the USA around foreign policy. So I think the book also exposes some of that as well, right? That, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, we have a lot of critiques, but Again, you know, lots of times when politics get in, involved, you know, people get in their tribes and everybody butts heads. So I, I really wanted to make this to try to expose some of the libertarian ideas, particularly the critiques of governments, you know, current day governments, real governments, without putting people in tribes and butting heads. Right. So, so I really think that, you know, a standard Republican could read this and really, you know, learn from it. And I also think, you know, I don't think lefties would, it wasn't really written for lefties, but I still think they could read it and, and not be like attacked, right? So the book doesn't, I don't do anything to try to attack people. I try to give everybody their best point of view, you know, steel man, steel man, where everybody thinks they're at, right? Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting. Um, you wrote this book just a couple months ago, right? Or you finished just a couple months ago? Right. I published it on September 11th. So that's, that's my publishment date. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so I was thinking as we both started uh, talking about getting introduced to libertarianism uh, in 2008, 2012, a lot has changed in the world since those days. Right. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to shout out to uh, Mark Claire in the Lions of Liberty because he talked about uh, some of the stuff that happened in uh, the year 2020 and 2021. And he says that if your thinking hasn't changed or hasn't evolved over the last uh, 18 months or so, then you're really not doing much thinking. And so were you inspired by the events of this past year or, or, or it's just carried over from uh, previous thinking? So definitely the last year, you know, has changed my point of view, no doubt about that. Um, in fact, the pandemic is really what gave me all this time to write the book. Hmm. Uh, normally I'm, I'm busy doing a lot of stuff with my three kids and, you know, doing family things, whatever. Um, and when everything was shut down, I mean, even though lots of stuff was technically open, there was just so many you couldn't do, like all the kids activities were, were done. So that gave me so much time to actually write the book and being able to observe how both the media reacted and how the governments reacted, you know, shutting things down for no reason, you know, like, where I'm at, they closed all the outdoor parks. And it's just mm-hmm. like, why? It's outdoors. I mean, even, even if they wanted to try to do something safe, you know, why not make people wear masks? I mean, why would they close down a public park over a virus that's outdoors, right? I mean, it just, it made no sense. There was nothing, nothing, none of the reaction of this had any, anything to do with the quote science, had nothing to do with protecting people. You know, it really exposed that the the media was there to drum up fear, to, to make people want to give away their liberties, right? I mean, that's, that was the media's number one job in this whole thing. It wasn't to educate people. It wasn't to help people out. It wasn't to make people safer. None of that. It was just there to strike up fear. 
And then, of course, the government's reaction was, how do we get more power? How do we use that fear to put in emergency powers, to spend gobs of money, to print money up, to bail out the banks, right? They bailed out the banks, they bailed out Wall Street. So it was all this sequence of events that you're like, this whole thing is just phony. It's all built on lies, top to bottom. None of it's here to help people out. It's all here to help the elites that are running the country. So, I mean, I, and, you know, all that you kind of knew before, but it, just the scale at which it was exposed is what really, you know, drove things home to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me want to just get out, you know, pick up my bags and, and just leave. But uh, unfortunately, in today's world, there, there's not a real country like Concordia in your novel where you can right. just escape to. But, uh, you know, let, let, let's talk about the book a little bit here. So uh, it, the setting was in the desert of Chile. And uh, do you have it? Have you ever been to Chile? Because you, you, you write like you know a lot about the country. No, I haven't. But I did. I did probably a good six months of research on it, both in reading books and extensive uh, YouTube videos, um, even Google Maps. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Google Maps, really learning geography of the country. Um, and particularly the desert part about it. Um, there was a great book that I read that some some guy who actually works for the Mormon church built this really extensive book, you know, documenting everything about the desert, the people who live there, but like all 10 of them, because there's hardly anybody that lives there. Um, hmm. And it was just such a valuable resource. I mean, it, it was color. So it was like a big, thick chapter book, like a 400 big giant, like a textbook almost. And it just was loaded with information. So I absorbed that like a sponge. And hopefully some of that translated into the book, you know, to, to kind of bring, bring the reader in. Cause you know, when I read books, I love books that take me places. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love reading, you know, guys like uh, Mark Twain. And even though it's America, he's bringing you back to a time that doesn't exist anymore. Right. He's, he's bringing the reader somewhere. So I was, I wanted to, you know, kind of make it in such a way that the reader would be able to experience what it was like to be in Chile, to be in the desert. And in the other scenes, like when they're in Santiago or when they're in Patagonia, you know, bring people into those places that they've probably never been before. Right. So that was that was my goal. And I, I sounds like I nailed it for you. Right. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, it, it made me think, uh, hey, this, this guy actually knows something about the about the landscape and, you know, uh, the way you described the desert and the road and, and the ocean and everything like that. It, it was really cool. But I think that uh, you did very well with character development. The uh, the protagonist, uh, Paul Walker, you know, the entrepreneur who had this vision of creating a, a whole country. I think that you did well understanding the power dynamics uh, when it comes to actually doing something like that. Unlike uh, Atlas Shrugged, where you just disappear, you know, this person actually had to work with governments to, you know, as a contractor to get certain things uh, underway. And I thought that you really you really nailed that. And I don't hear that kind of discussion in most circles that, I, you know, you communicate with. Right. So one of the intriguing parts about the book is most of the people in the book are actually based on people I know in the real world. Okay. Um, and of course, I am not going to divulge any names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so those people are just going to have to figure out who they are by reading the book. But um, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I am an entrepreneur. I own my own business. And when you're a leader of a company and when you own a business, when you're, when you're in an ownership role, you experience the world differently than somebody who just punches the clock nine to five, right? Absolutely. So you, 
So you really get to see the interactions, the power, right? And the wealth and the leadership, you know, like I lead a team where I'm at currently and, you know, people, they do, they look up to you. They, they want you to, to help advance their careers. They want you to make them productive. They want you to, to guide them and, and be like their, their guiding light. And when I made characters, I wanted the characters in the book to have leadership qualities. I wanted other characters to need to be led, right? Because, I mean, you've seen that in the book. Some of the characters, you know, they, they're confused. They don't have their own guide. They need, they need a strong person to lead them. So, you know, I, I tried to combine those together, personality types, you know, because obviously the world is full of different personality types and, and build a compelling, you know, interaction between the characters so that when they're in different scenarios in the book, you can really see where libertarian helps and where, you know, people reject it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that was kind of, that's kind of where a lot of that character development came from. So. Now, did you uh, model a character after your own self or, or is it just people that you know? <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm, I'm not in the book and nobody in my immediate family's in the book either. So that's, that's, we can just get rid of that. So. No, I, I wish, I wish I was more like the main character, but, but no, that's, that's definitely not me. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, um, you really do see the character flaws in people. You know, you start off uh, in the beginning of the book and you, you, you find out with, uh, these two characters and they're, they're on an airplane and discussing, you know, landing in Chile and what they're going to do to create this whole uh, new government. And then you find out that one of those characters is actually the bad guy at the end. Right. And so you do a very good switch there. So I, I really, like, I really uh, appreciate the character development there. Yeah, and I, I know one of the things I've, I've gotten feedback on is, you know, the idea of, you know, be, betrayal, right? I mean, the, the book has that deep-seated betrayal in it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of those emotions that, you know, if anybody's ever been, if you've ever worked a corporate job and you've tried to climb the ladder, because that was also, you know, before I started my own business, I was in that world trying to climb the corporate ladder. You're going to get betrayed. I mean, you, you just are. That's how people work. They they're going to stab you in the back to promote their own careers at the expense of yours. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that experience in my own life kind of drove some of that personality type that I write in the book. Okay. Okay. Now, were you ever in the military? No, I wasn't. Um, okay. My, Cause you, you really do a good job talking about some of the, uh, the conflicts militarily. And I don't want to give too much of the book away. I want to intrigue people enough to go out and read it, but uh, yeah, no, you know, you, no spoiler alerts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you talk well about uh, you know some of the um, the artillery that they use, some of the machines that they use. So you know I've never served either, so I, I wouldn't know the names of half of the weapons that you described in there. So was it just more research that you did? Well, so part of that is I am a firearms enthusiast. I I love okay. guns, um, and I I grew up with guns. My my older brother, he probably has about five hundred guns. He's a gun collector. Oh wow, okay. Um, and he's always you know, let me shoot the guns and be around the guns. And my dad was in the military. You know, he was, he was a reservist during Vietnam, but still he was, you know, he was a military person. So, and, you know, another passion of mine is history. I mean, I read a lot of history, particularly World War II history, um, World War One. you know, kind of 19th, 20th century type history. So, um, yeah, I'm, I've always been fascinated with military, with, with guns, specifically um so i mean you know writing that part of the book was actually pretty enjoyable i didn't 
I didn't have to do a lot of research and a lot of uh, digging to really find things that I knew I wanted to put in the book. Right. So that was a, I mean, that was that part of it. I was like, I can nail this pretty easily. So, you know, one thing that I found really interesting was the, that you tackled some issues that, uh, you know, most people don't like to talk about in, uh, in public. You know, you tackled the abortion issue. You tackled, uh, you know, not only just a gun right issue, but you also tackled like uh, uh, people longing for like socialism, communism, and, and you know, how they can actually uh, live peacefully in a, in a society. And, uh, you know, you really, you really hone in on, on the different thought processes. In your typical libertarian world, you know, would would you allow all different kinds of issues in the same place? Because I've I've got a slight, I don't know, maybe I'll call it an objection to uh, to the reason why I think the society in a book fell apart. Spoiler alert! <laughs> but um, yeah, so you know, what are your thoughts about that? Do you, do you really think that uh, people with completely polar opposite viewpoints can live peacefully together? Well, there's. There's two thoughts that I have personally on that. And, and one is if you involve, let's just say like a, de- a de- democratic system where everybody gets the vote, eventually you're going to get to the point where, you know, the lower probably two thirds of the economic scale is going to rule the politics, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing that now where everything is starting to be, you know, free education, free college type stuff free healthcare, just, just everything. Right. So you'll, you'll see that, but you can go to the other extreme too. Like say you built, say you lived in a country where they had no representation at all. Then what you're going to get is people get frustrated because those people still exist. They still want all that free stuff, Mm -hmm. but then, then they're going to take up arms and they're going to fight. Right. And, and, you know, one of the things I learned by doing history, in fact, I'm reading, I'm reading for my next book i'm doing some research now in venezuela okay um and you can really see in there that every time the government does something to kind of restrict voting rights or you know to restrict that whole uh, democratic process people took up arms and either took over the government or they had to fight so i think in one regard you've got to find a way to make it where people have some say but you also have to make it in such a way that they can't dominate everything mm-hmm. right so i think I think what I tried to portray in the book that that conflict exists regardless of the type of government. But if you make a government in such a way that there is, that they have some input, but not too much, right? So that like a great example in the book is that when they want to raise taxes, property owners have to approve those taxes. Since they're the ones that are getting taxed, it would only make sense for them to be able to control whether or not their taxes go up or not. Sure. So in that, sure. in that case, that's not left up to a vote for the general population. That's left up to a vote of the landholders, right? So that would be a scenario where you could, you know, kind of restrict the um, suffrage where not everybody gets to vote on every single thing, right? Because because then otherwise, of course, most people don't own land. Let's let's raise taxes on it, right? So uh, I I do think fundamentally though to make a long-term libertarian society stable, I think you're either going to have to be prepared for conflict or you're going to have to be prepared to, you know, kick people out or just not let them be involved. So, I mean, I- right. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the issues that you, you, uh, you keyed in on is, uh, you know, a lot of libertarians will talk about open borders, but in the book you had strict border control, you know, only certain kind of people can get in there. And, uh, there was a scene where somebody had to sneak in and they were, uh, 
they were being uh, led outside into uh, the ocean and they had to go scuba dive and to, to kind of hide, uh, you know, from the, the guards that were, you know, preventing people from leaving the, the other country that they were in. Right. And, and that is my favorite chapter, by the way. So that's no. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it, another, another point is, you know, not only did you express the need to have some kind of borders, if you're going to have a free society, you can't just let anyone come and go whenever you want. But to also talked about uh, the, the idea of having a defense system. I think that was one of the conversations in the book itself where one of the main guys was like, okay, we have all this uh, military equipment. We have all this, you know, defense and, and um, you know, we, we have um, allies with other countries who have our back just in case. Whereas, you know, the, the, the standard libertarian thought is, you know, non-aggression principle, you know, but I don't think that'll work. I don't think you can have a society where, you know, like you mentioned, one one side is going to be the aggressor. What are you going to do? Just let him walk all over you, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, and that is one of the main points of the book, at least from a philosophy point of view, is that you're still going to have conflict, you know, just, just by removing government or even say you could pare government down to the bare, excuse me, absolute minimum. You're, there's still going to be a conflict because people want different things in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it. Libertarians are only what, five, 10% of the population. So what are you going to do with that other 90% of the people out there, right? Are they, they just going to magically convert to your point of view? I mean, that, that's not happening, is it? Right. right? So, so yeah, I, I really think you've got to be able, you know, one of, one of the things too about the NCAP thing that just drives me nuts is like, I've heard Bob Murphy say, you could have an insurance company run, run your military. And I was like, I don't think Bob has ever tried to replace a roof on his house. <laughs> because the last thing an insurance company wants to do is pay anything out. Right. So I don't want to live in a society where an insurance company is running the military because that's going to fall apart in about two months. So, I mean, I think if you want a, a stable society, you're going to have to be prepared to defend yourself. And that that's a military. And, you know, something that I think American libertarians struggle with is we're within the empire. You know, here we kind of see America's foreign policy, we think foreign pol- our foreign policy is bad, therefore the military itself is bad. But you know, a lot of countries don't see their military that way. A lot of countries don't have a military that can go take over other people. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of countries have a military where their real goal is just to maintain order in society, right? They, like, again, go look at the South American countries. They don't, none of those militaries are big enough to go take over Iraq. Right. So, I mean, it's I just think when you when you remove yourself from the U.S., I think. The idea of having a military, I think, would change a lot of people's point of view on that, because it's because, I mean, I agree with their critiques on the empire. I mean, I an American empire is bad and it is we do kill a lot of people overseas unjustly. Mm -hmm. But I think that tarnishes people's thoughts too deeply on the fact that a military is there to maintain order within the country as well. Right. So, I mean, I think, I hope the book kind of laid that out clearly because that, that was my goal on that. Well, one of the things that I touched on this before, one of the things I think that uh, just talking to you, you understand is the way power and influence works in the real world. You know, I was introduced to a book uh, last year called the Machiavellians and uh, it really, it, it really changed my paradigm. You know, people say within the libertarian world that you know we don't want government. That's never going to happen. 
No. I mean, we're always going to have some kind of a government. In the book, the Machiavellians talks about the, the circulation of the elites, right? The power, the power circles. And so there's always going to be some kind of government, right? And so if you're going to have some kind of government, you know, how can you actually limit it the, the most? But understanding that you know, you're just not going to live in a society where there, there is no government. It's just not going to work. Yeah, that's right. And and the other thing I tried to, to put in the book is, you know, if you're if you're trying to limit government, you've got to make it in such a way that limiting the government benefits the elites. Right. Because because you're right, you're going to any any country that you have, there's going to be elites. They're going to run society. That's how people work. I mean, take take a group of 100 people. There's going to be naturally within that group five or six people that are just natural leaders. The rest of the, the 90, whatever, 93, 94 people, they're just going to fall in line behind whatever those leaders decide. I mean, that's, that is how people work. So you're going to have leadership anywhere you're at. And that those people are going to be the ones running your country. So if you want to maintain a limited libertarian freedom maximizing government, you've got to align incentives so that the elites benefit from it. And I actually think I put a line in the book that said, well, we know people wouldn't live in this desert if it weren't for our government because nobody lived here before the government got here, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason people moved to that country in the book is because it's a free country, because of its freedom, because of the limited government, because of the social freedoms, things like that. So if, say in that book, they decide to, to go rogue and, you know, make it a terrible place to, to live, people would just leave, right? So the elites in that scenario don't have a lot of incentives to make the government grow to a point where people don't want to move there anymore. Right. right? So, right. so I think the Machiavellians helps you understand that those elites exist. It also helps you understand that the incentives are so important and that, you know, people, people want the power to advance themselves. They don't want the power just so they can rule over everybody. I mean, some people want that but but i mean it's you know those those elites like for instance a lot of elites in the u.s like tech companies things like that i mean those people they want the power in the government to make like for instance amazon amazon petitioned the government to, to tax the internet why because they knew that would benefit them over all their competitors right sure. so it's it's just one of those obvious things that the the elites are going to use that government to advance themselves so you want to make it as much as possible where that maximizes freedom for everybody else. Right. Absolutely. You mentioned a couple of times the word incentive and uh, my mind just went to uh, the financial system. You know, we'll start with the, the corrupt uh, fiat currency system that we have here in the United States and, you know, the revolution of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And uh, you, you know, you described in a book that you have a, a cryptocurrency type of system uh, in a, in a, in a country of Concordia. Now, are you a big uh, Bitcoin, uh, I guess, fan, for lack of a better word? Bitcoin specifically, no, but cryptocurrencies, I'm very, very bullish on, um, okay. including including Bitcoin. I mean, I don't, I don't have anything against it, but um, I think, you know, one of the challenges are if, if we're going to really pare government down, there's got to be something that replaces it. And obviously, something like central banking is a negative to both the general public, to freedom, to money itself, to value, you know, all that productivity. Central banking kills all of that. So the great thing with cryptocurrency is it gives a, a transparent, 100% transparent, because it's in a public ledger. Anybody can validate it, 
right? Anybody with a cheap PC can go look at the public ledger and validate all the records of it. Mm -hmm. So it's 100% transparent. There is no centralization. It's 100% decentralized. And I really think for us to, to advance libertarian thought, we're going to need institutions that can replace government in such a way that once people have it, they're never going to want to go back. Because I, I think, like, say you started a country and your main currency was a cryptocurrency, and then that government tried to come in and replace it with a central bank, I think people would go crazy. I mean, people would be rioting in the streets. It wouldn't be like it was back in 1913 where they could just spring in a central bank on people. Sure. So I, th I think things like cryptocurrency will really advance libertarian, you know, the idea of being able to have libertarian and free societies. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm very bullish on the technologies. And it, I do think the technologies are going to continue to advance as well. And I, I think some of the people who think Bitcoin's the end all be all is maybe a little short sighted. Right. <laughs> Well, I don't know enough about Bitcoin. Uh, I know I know I hold some, and I don't know how all the the how it works. But uh, a lot of what you're talking about does make sense. Right. And um, where was I going with that? So, uh, <laughs> it, well, it's interesting because I, I think it was El Salvador now that made uh, crypto or Bitcoin uh, a, a, um, a currency, a, a legal tender legal there. Tender. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, I think there was an African nation as well. I can't remember, but. So it'll be interesting in your research for future uh, future books, how you know how that plays off, you know, because uh, obviously when you're talking about uh, the money system, you know, a, a lot a large part of the American empire is based on what I call the petrodollar, you know. So obviously, you know, people complain about the war for oil, and it, yeah, that's definitely it, and it's all about right now the the current climate is about it's about who's going to have the. Uh, the um, the monetary standard for the world. So you see countries like uh, like China, you know, and, and the United States at odds with each other because they want dominance with the money system. You remove that whole thing from government, and I think it, it really limits their power, which is which is a good insight right there. Yeah, it does. And and you know, without you know, the two things that really help government grow is, I mean, fundamentally, it's money. I mean, that's, I mean, look at look at our government now. It it runs these enormous deficits that's funded by printing money. I mean, they're not getting this from taxes. They don't have to go back to the voters and say, hey, you want this public works project we're building, we're gonna have to raise your taxes. Or you wanna go drop bombs on Iraq, we're gonna have to raise your taxes. They didn't do that. They just said, yeah, we're gonna do this stuff anyways. And we're just gonna take enormous debt out. And that debt's just gonna be financed by the central bank. So yeah. I, I really think central banking, you know, underpins so much of the growth and corruption of government. So, I mean, I, I see a lot of, to me, cryptocurrency is an enormous white pill. I mean, I see a, a bright future for it. Um, and I do think governments are going to try to shut it down. But I, I think just the decentralized nature of the technology, um, I don't think that's going to, it's going to work. And if it does work on a specific cryptocurrency, I think all that's going to do is encourage people to really double down on things like Bitcoin or, or to make things where it's all, you know, even impossible for governments to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think China's outlawed Bitcoin uh, in their country like three or four times already, and yet it still right. pops up. So <laughs> what can they do about it? Yeah. Which is ironic because a lot of the mining actually happens in China, but. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> very cool. So, uh, you know, I think I just want to touch in on one last point here. You know, 
just the um, the way that governments actually work with each other. You know, I, I I'm not a huge proponent of the United Nations, right? But in the book, you, you you describe you know having to have certain allies, you know, the people who start the country, they they need to have the backing of other countries. And I mean, is this this is probably what really would happen if, if somebody would actually start a country. You'd have to actually have allies all over the place because I know in a book you mentioned that uh, you know countries like the United States didn't recognize uh, your imaginary country of Concordia because they didn't play by the rules, right? Or they, they made allies with, with other people. It's, um, it's, it's, it's an understanding of, uh, of just global power playing. You know, it's kind of like a risk board. You got to have certain, certain allies and make sure that you, you, know, you, you buddy up to certain, uh, certain other countries so they don't come and take you out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that drives trade internationally is industrial policy. And, you know, I, I actually minored in economics when I was in college. Okay. And, and one of the things that I enjoyed in that was international trade was one of the subjects that, that intrigued me the most. And a lot of people, obviously, you know, if you, if you look at any of the free trade agreements within the U.S., you see they're not free trade agreements. They're industrial policies. It's the farm lobby trying to sell corn to China or it's the automobile industry trying to sell cars to South America or whatever, right? I mean, it's, it's none of it is actually free trade. Because I, I think Ron Paul had a beautiful line at some point where he said, if we just wanted free trade, you used to have a one sentence agreement, free trade. That's it. <laughs> right. You wouldn't need a 10,000 page, you know, treaty between these nations to have that. So I think understanding that industrial policy drives so much of you know, foreign trade and international trade, that if you were to ever to, you know, make your own nation, like say, say New Hampshire became its own country at some point, you know, which I, I think would be great. I think that'd be an incredible development. But if they were to do that, the first thing they're going to have to do is find people that can feed them. Because, you know, New Hampshire is not a state that's going to be able to produce enough food to feed all of its people. And if it does, it's going to be so limited. So they're going to have to trade international. Absolutely. So, so who are they going to trade with? Well, if they split from America, it's very unlikely that America is going to trade with them. So their first natural trading partner would have to be somebody like Canada. So before a country, you know, before somebody like New Hampshire could ever become independent, they're going to have to have agreements with these other countries to have trade to be able to support themselves. You know, so I, I do think that's an important thing for people to think about if they ever really want to try to implement something like this in the real world. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, New Hampshire. Of course, they have the Free State Project up there. But uh, there's two reasons why I wouldn't want to join that organization. Number one is because it's too darn cold up north. I'd rather be somewhere south. And you, you touched on the, the biggest point, I think, in my opinion, is New Hampshire is landlocked little state. It doesn't have any ports or any, you know, any, any borders with anything. So why would they do their Free State Project in New Hampshire as opposed to like, you know, Florida or something like that? I, I don't know if there was much thinking behind that or what. It's just my opinion, though. Right. They, they actually do have a sliver of oceanfront property. I believe it's like 13 miles or something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I got to touch up on my geography a little bit. but <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Like if you look at the map, Maine and then New Hampshire, just like a little bit and then it's Massachusetts. Okay. I am a geography wizard, so I, I, I love there geography. But I mean, yeah, it's look, I mean, I think one day America is going to break apart. I mean, I, I really do. And when it happens, 
you want at least the one thing I think that's good with New Hampshire and the Free State Project is when when America breaks up, it will. I have absolutely no doubt it will break up on state lines. It absolutely will. Hmm. I mean, maybe it's clusters of states, like maybe it's like four or five countries or whatever. But you want to be in a position where at least you can control one of those states, and the one of those states will become a, a resulting independent country, right? So I think I think just and then obviously before America breaks up, wouldn't you rather be in a state that's got more libertarians and states that don't? Right. So I mean that's I suppose, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, New Hampshire's only got like a million people in it too. So, you know, if a hundred thousand libertarians file in, that's 10% just right off the top. So yeah. it's I mean, I, I think it's a good good strategy. Um I'm not moving to the northeast anytime soon, just because I don't think I would fit in very culturally, right? So to me, and you know, my family's in the Southeast too. So it's, you know, it's, it's not going to work out for me, but I would love to see a similar project in like, say South Carolina or something in Wyoming or, you know, somewhere where there's other projects that, you know, cause America is big enough. We can have more than one free state, right? Absolutely. You know, you touched on something there that I, I there was one it was one of my critiques of the book, not necessarily your writing, but just the idea of being able to start a country like that is because they did invite people from all over the place, different cultures. And I think that's that's the number one issue that causes contention in our country is that we have all kinds of different cultures. You know, you mentioned the Northeast and Florida and my, my family lived in Florida for a time. I'm I'm here in the Midwest in Chicago. And so um, it's just crazy to think that you can force a similar culture upon everybody, right? And so in the book, you talk about, you know, different people from different countries and they all come in and they have to kind of be educated as to what liberty really means. Right. And so my, my thought was, how feasible is that to actually teach somebody how to get along with somebody else's culture? Because you're talking about, you know, generations of time who have certain customs and tr certain traditions. And is it possible to have, you know, have people move to a certain place and say, okay, we're going to forget about all our traditions, all our cultures, and we're going to take on this liberty mantra as, as our culture now. What do you thought? Of, what do you think about that? Well, there's, first off, that's a great question. Um, secondly, there's actually a couple examples of that in the real world today. But before I go into those, I think, I think the main thing is the more you have a centralized government, the more that you try to regulate more, you know, the, day-to-day -day aspects of people's lives, I think the harder it becomes to have a multicultural society. Um, in general, like for me personally, I don't think I would be happy in a multicultural society. I, it's, it's not for me personally. But like I said, there are real world examples of that. Like if you look at Singapore, it is a very multicultural society. Hmm. It's multi-ethnic, it's uh, multilingual, it's multi-religion. And you know, Singapore is a relatively free country. It's, it's only got 5 million people on it. It's very dense, mm -hmm. but it's, it is a multicultural society where people aren't at odds with each other. And the main reason they're not at odds is because the government's not dictating every little thing everybody has to do. Right. So I think, I think libertarian and multicultural are not necessarily at odds with each other. Okay. Um, I do agree with you in principle, though, that there would be conflicts there or potentially there would be conflicts. Um, but I think if you let things be as decentralized as possible, you know, like let Chinatown be Chinatown. Right. You don't you don't try to inflict on Chinatown, you know, American values on them, so to speak. Right. Or English or Anglo values. 
So, I mean, I think, I think there is room for that. Uh, the other example is a country like Switzerland. I mean, Switzerland's a very decentralized, they're, they're sent, they're, their government is a weak central government. They've got a federalized system, the cantons. And again, they're multilingual. I believe there's four major languages. Um, and I believe Switzerland right now, 25% of the country's population is from somewhere else, right? So they've digested this huge influx of immigrants into their country. And they're a stable, peaceful, free, you know, they're a, they're a freedom-loving country. Now, obviously to American libertarians, you know, Switzerland is still kind of a socialist country, right? But, but that's done at their Canton levels, not at the central government level, mm-hmm. right? So I think, I think if you're willing to let live and let people do what they're going to do, and not try to have a dominant culture that in you know projects itself onto everybody else. I think they can work together. Well, that's uh, I hope so. You know, that's uh, I think that's uh, you and I both want to see that one day. And so uh, I guess my my next question would just be you know um, knowing what happened in the book, and we're not going to spoil it for anybody. But uh, you know they have they have some problems uh, in a relatively short period of time. But at the end, they kind of resolve all that stuff and, you know, they just go forward. But you, you leave like a cliffhanger, like, okay, well, this is what it is. So is there going to be a sequel to Concordia? There is. And uh, again, thank you for asking, because that's a great question. I'm working on part two right now. Um, it will be a standalone book. So, I mean, you, you won't necessarily have to read the first, but there will be, you know, hibernate cross-pollination of characters and things like that. And then I've already kind of got the frameworks for a part three in my mind as well. So, I, so I, I'm, I'm looking to make it a trilogy of books. Okay. Um, okay. And the third book will be about the fall of the U.S. So that's nice. The, yeah. So I, I think, and I think that'd be uh, an important topic that people will want to read about. So I think, I think the trilogy will be set up in such a way that you can read them separately. And then, you know, I think the, the, you know, the kind of, the big conclusion at the end will be America dissolving. So I think uh, I can't wait to write it. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to writing both books. So. All right. Well, Rudy, you definitely made a fan out of me with that book. So uh, where can people find your book? Is it, is that on Amazon or do you have a, a place where they should go and, and check out more of your work? Yeah. Um, Amazon has the book. Just type in Concordia. There must be another, uh, there must be a better way. Uh, but really, if you want to get in touch with me, or if you want to follow me, go to my blog because concordia.blog, uh, that's where I have everything. And, and also for any of your tribe that's watching, I have a special offer for you where I'll give them a free t-shirt if they review my book. So cool. um, it's concordia.blog slash Invictus. All right. Well, we'd like to hear that. So I, I appreciate the conversation. Uh, you know, good yeah. job in a book. And I, I look forward to, to checking more of your workout. Excellent. Thank you. And I really appreciate you bringing me on the show. I, I enjoyed meeting you. And this was a great interview. All right. Thank you. I want to thank everyone who listened to the show today. I want to thank Rudy for coming on. I want to take a minute here and acknowledge your upcoming holiday this week. Of course, it is Thanksgiving on Thursday. So please take some time to recap everything that you are grateful for. Each of us are blessed in so many ways, and sometimes, of course, we do fail to acknowledge those blessings. We live in a scary and at times what seems to be a hopeless world, but until that person comes and builds a perfectly free society, the best thing that you can do is to have gratitude in your heart. 
My advice this week would be to spend some time with your family, with your loved ones, or your friends. Tell them that you are grateful for them and for this life that you're living. I promise you you'll feel better about yourself and you will feel more inspired. I will have another episode up next week, and unless something happens and the interview doesn't take place, I think you will enjoy it. So until then, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, stay busy, stay prosperous, and most of all, stay free. We'll see you next time. 